Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. When we think of nanoparticles, do we think about the potential advances in medicine with targeted cell-specific treatments? Or do we get all dystopian and become paralysed with anxiety at the thought of uncontrollable invisible entities taking over the world? I'm leaning towards the former. Thankfully, though, we have somebody like Matt Faria to set our minds at ease. Matt Faria, now bear with me, postgraduate student, Nanostructured Interfaces and Materials Science Group, Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering, Melbourne School of Engineering at the University of Melbourne. And yes, he works on much smaller things than his descriptor. He chats to Steve Grimwade with the even smaller descriptor of Eavesdrop on Experts Reporter. I hear nanoparticles mentioned around your name, often they're congregating around you as we speak, I believe. Um, <laughs> This is part of your research. Yeah, so uh, so I work with uh, I work in, in two labs. The Systems Biology Lab um, is my main lab. They're they're focused on computational biology and well, systems biology, which is a, a branch of computational biology, and uh, they are looking at building computational models to to solve problems around biological systems. Um, the other lab that I work with is the Nanostructured Interfaces and Materials Lab, Material Science Lab. Uh, they make nanoparticles, make nanomaterials. Um, and so I'm kind of at the intersection of that, of trying to find models that, uh, computational models and mathematical models that can tell us something about how these new nanoparticles interact with, with, with biology. And the interesting thing about nanomaterials is that we can engineer and control a vast number of properties. And uh, the lab that I'm part of it, that, that does that uh, is focused on trying to make uh, new types of therapeutic um, delivery system. So the ideal of nano nanotherapeutics is that you could design a medicine that goes to one part of your body, um, perhaps one cell in that part of your body, one type of cells in that part of your body, delivers medicine and changes it, fixes it. So for instance, if you have cancer, you want to take something that goes directly to the cancer site, delivers a drug that kills the cancer cells, and doesn't touch any other cell in your body. That's the ideal. Um, the reality is a little bit far from that. There's still a lot we don't understand about how they interact with cells, how, how cells are uh, responding to them, and about how our body reacts to nanomedicines. Um, and there's lots of, and there's, you know, so cancer is one example. Other examples are vaccines, right? So in a vaccine, it's a, it's, it's a similar problem where you want to go to a specific cell type and then do something to it. So you want to go to the immune cells of interest. You want to introduce something that causes them to respond to whatever you're trying to vaccinate against, right? So, so that's what I, I see the central problem as being. And then um, there's many different sub-problems that are, of course, huge and extremely relevant to, to, to solving real problems. I want to get... Uh back to that small little thing, the nanoparticle, what on earth is it? So a nanoparticle, I think the, the, the textbook definition would be um, something that is engineered on the nanoscale in at least one dimension. Um, the truth is, is that nano is a little bit of a buzzword. Like everything has, you know, we're all made of atoms. So everything has nanostructure, right? We're, we're, we're all, well, nanos are, I guess atoms are a little bit smaller than nano, but, you know, it's, so it's a little bit of a buzzword, but um, the idea is controlling properties at the nano level. So, and that turns out to be very interesting for a number of applications. So I, I was talking about healthcare before, but uh, there's plenty of other applications, you know, that are 
heavily affected by being able to affect things at the nanostructure. So, for instance... Well, I was going to say, like shrinking a spaceship until it's really, really small <laughs> and then injecting into someone's body, yeah? Yes. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's, the, that's the popular opinion. Uh, that, 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 I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the happy uh, opinion. The, 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 the more troubling one are people who are worried about self-replicating tiny robots, like destroying the entire Earth, right? The, the gray, gray goo situation is what it's called. Um, the truth is, is that we're <laughs> very, very far from, from both of those things. It's more about understanding how to make, uh, to have any kind of property at, at, at a very small scale. So, for instance, one of the, the, in the skydiving um, experiments that that uh, I think brought you to my brought me to your attention, uh, we were looking at a, a type of material called a MOF, a metal organic framework, and they're very interesting because they have uh, they're very very porous. Well, they're interesting for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is that they're incredibly porous and incredibly porous things. So, think of a sponge. Now. If you, can pl- if you compare a sponge to a block of whatever a sponge is made of that isn't spongy, oh, that's not a very good analogy. A, a sponge to, a, compare a sponge to the same thing, but it's wood instead of a sponge. The wood doesn't absorb water very well, right? It's, it's terrible. You, you take a block of wood, you put it on a, on a puddle, it's not going to do a good job at all. I mean, I've never done it, but I, I'm very certain of that. Now, you take a sponge, and it's great. It, it sucks up tons of water, and it can hold it. Um, and, and that's very analogous to what happens with um, these moths, is that they can absorb a tremendous, because they have so many pores, and, you know, it's, it's at, a, it's at a, you know, a degree of magnitude greater than, than a sponge, because the pores are not only on, you know, sort of the physical um, macroscopic level, they're, they're on a nano level. They can, so they're among the most porous materials that there are, that we know of. Um, so they can absorb um, all, kinds of, all kinds of things, which makes them very useful for a lot of chemical applications. This is where I come to that point where science equals freak out for me like you know i read that basically uh a i mean i did read about these nano-sized synthetic structures that they're as you say riddled uh with molecular holes but their, their huge surface areas mean that a teaspoon of moth can have the same surface area as a football field it begins to freak me out just a little bit it's kind of like uh yeah well I'll, how do you explain that further i mean you're saying they have, they're porous they have holes how can something that small have such a great area? Well, I think it's maybe challenging our intuitions about what surface area means a little bit. So I think for most of the things, we're used to a surface area of something not being... So the surface area of a sponge, you could consider being... It's much greater than than the actual surface area of the equivalent block of wood because of the holes, right? So holes essentially add surface area without taking away, without needing more mass. In fact, they need less mass, right? You, you, by taking something out, you've added to the surface area, and you haven't, and you require less material to make that thing, right? So that that's how you get massive, massive surface areas without needing a ton of material. Mm-hmm. So right, these are so holy essentially that that there's very, very little material, but they have so much area available to them. And if you continue to get smaller and smaller and are able to m- manipulate the surface area at a, a tiny level, you're exponentially increasing the size or the of the surface area as you go up. Yes. Sorry, I'm not quite sure that I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, so, um, it's, it's... Let, let's turn. Let's turn to my silly question because yeah. this is related. Yeah. Bear with me. Yeah. I kind of try and think of the let's let's say the coast, the coastline. I look at a map yeah. every now and then. I think I see the coast yeah. and I see this line that waves. You know that is scratchy. I then get closer and I get more detail on, as to what the the actual line means and the length of area around that line. So yeah. from from a top level, you know, as the crow flies, I might think the 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 
the coastline is a, a thousand kilometers long. Yeah. But as I go down, the coastline is actually maybe twice as long as that because it's actually going from side to side. The more and more I zoom in on it and get closer to the small intricate, intricate uh, wiggles on that line, the length of that absolute, absolute line gets bigger and bigger. Is that the same case with nanoparticles? The, the, the smaller you get and the more you can actually open up that space, the larger the, the area is? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good analogy. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it now, and I, and I think that maybe with lines, it might break. It, I think it's a little bit different in three dimensions than in two or in one. I think that there are some... I think the way that it works... It's more of a mathematical question at yeah. that point. I think that the way it works is you can have a, a, a limit in two dimensions that that isn't infinite. I have to think about it. In any case, I, th I think that is a good analogy. So, yeah. it, it, but, but, so... the Matt's <laughs> being very kind. Matt's being very kind no, right no, now. I'm, I'm thinking about... No, I, I do think it's a good analogy. I just... I, I feel like maybe in three dimensions things work a little bit differently in terms of that. But but of course, so the, the difference is in, in from your analogy is that what you're describing is how things really are, right? So you're going from an approximation that we use for a map to mm -hmm. how things really are. Mm -hmm. Now we're going from how things really are to a different way that things really are, right? So like if you compare, again, if you go use the sponge analogy, which I like, if you, if you look at the block of wood, like the block of wood really has a surface area that's a lot less than a sponge. Right. There's there's a there's a lot less, you know, area involved. And why is surface area important? That's that's another thing I should probably address. So a lot of chemical reactions, they are faster um, or more efficient uh, when you have a larger surface area. So there's a lot of interest in having materials that have a high surface area. Um, and one of, and, and you know traditionally one of one of the ways that we got surface area was really to to you know make holes in things and 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 that makes the, that makes reactions faster um, because there's just more there's you can think of it as there being more material available for reaction at the same time so and there is of course a limit of of how much surface area a material can have so um, I th graphene's a 2D material essentially it's it's one it's you know one sheet of atoms so you can't you can't have more surface area than that because if you take away that atom you know you you put holes in that there's no more you know atom space right like there's a there's there is a limit in in, in terms of how how little surface area you can have and i think moths get get or get close i should probably check for a reference on that <laughs> i hope you're getting all this matt faria and his colleagues certainly talk the talk but they also walk the walk he and several of his postgrad colleagues undertook experiments while actually skydiving from 14,000 feet above Melbourne. The intention was to release metal and organic particles into a solution using a syringe, where they would mix and form crystals in the temporary low gravity generated by free falling. That's right, they jumped out of planes with syringes. Why on earth were you and three of your scientific buddies falling at 9.8 metres Per second squared, doing a scientific experiment. Uh, so we were looking at uh, how the crystals of these moth structures form. Can we be clear here? You jumped out of a plane for science. That's correct. Uh, it's also been described as a leap of faith. Um, we so it wasn't our first step. So we we wanted to look at at how low gravity impacted the crystal formation, and there were some studies um, back way back when, looking at crystal formation, um, that showed that lower gravity seems to result in, in higher, in larger crystals. And uh, so first we thought, oh, how can we, how can we, 
how can we get this to have low gravity? How can we, so high gravity, so we, we also, so varying gravity is easy if you wanna get heavier. And the way you do that is you spin something. So spinning something makes it feel, makes it seem like it's, it's feeling a force that's much greater than gravity in the direction, uh, you know, away from the middle of the spin. Hence the Gravitron. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the classic, the classic carnival ride, <laughs> which I actually loved as a kid. That was my favorite ride. You know, yeah. you, you felt like you were heavier. It felt like you were getting stronger. I, I, was, I was horribly sick every time I rode it, so it was like like twice. <laughs> it made you really appreciate the the gravity of Earth, like that you were generally exposed to for sure. Um, but uh, so it's easy to get higher gravity, but lower gravity is much harder. Um, you you have to be falling. You have to be accelerating essentially um, without having reached terminal velocity. Um, and so we thought, well, so the first thing we did was we chucked it off um, a tall building to see, and, and that gives a few seconds of, of low gravity, low G. Um, and then, but it's not very much, so you could see an effect, but it was, it was quite small, so it's, it's hard to tell if it's, you know, maybe, some, maybe you're just seeing what you want to see, maybe it's, you just want to, you, you want a bigger effect to be sure that you're seeing uh, what you think you're seeing. So then we thought, oh, maybe we could maybe we could use drones or rockets, just get it up high. But of course, recovery is going to be, a, a, you know, a bit of an issue. Plus, I'm pretty sure you need permits for those things, and, that, <laughs> and, and you know, it's not like it's, it's not like it's inexpensive to, to buy a drone. Um, and the, the classic way that this was investigated, you know, was on the space station, which is also way out of budget. <laughs> you know, like well, there's no way we were going to get time on the space station, um, and or be able to pay for it, even if we could get time. And the other way this is done is through these um, fancy parabolic flights where a an airplane sort of flies in a special uh, up and down orbit uh, and and uh, look a bit snake-like parabolic. It simulates uh, low G as well. Um, also, totally not <laughs> possible for us. So we thought, oh, we'll, we'll jump out of a plane and 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 see if and you know we're, we'll be experiencing it. So if we're carrying something, it'll be experiencing the same the same forces that we are. Um, and so, uh, and so we did it. It was, it, was a, it was a great. It was a collaboration with a couple of people from CSIRO. Uh, Joseph Richardson's uh, was the was the lead guy at CSIRO on this, uh, and and um, a few of us from the University of Melbourne as well. I love. Um, having read about uh, this, uh, the jumpers had all been nervous about parachuting. Uh, this is a quote. But like true scientists, the fear of the experiment backfiring was greater than the fear of jumping out of the plane, which I kind of love. Um, <laughs> except, uh, you know, that moment when you jump, I expect that actually trying to remember to inject the fluid or the the metal into the fluid or whatever it was, yeah. you know, that, that would have been the, the the freak out thing. I've got to jump and remember something. I yeah, yeah. I can remember my name. I mean, I'm interested in this idea that nanoparticles are engineered. So nanoparticles are not organic or natural to the world. Well, I, so I think I think we should all be careful when we use the terms natural or or, or not natural to the world, right? I think they've become kind of loaded terms, and people have started to believe that somehow something being natural is better in some way or another. Uh, they they can be natural. They can be made out of natural materials, and there's plenty of people doing that. It turns out that natural materials are frequently cheaper or easier to obtain, which is why that's an advantage. But I think let's be clear. Something being so, in my opinion, and I'm sure people would debate me about this, but I think that something being natural is of no advantage, particularly. Um, but you're, but you're right. We we typically engineer them, so we purposely create properties that they have. We well, we try to make them have specific properties of interest for us. I think one of the one of the problems with the the natural versus non-natural thing, and one of the things that drives it is that we want things to be simpler than they are. I think that most people want the world to be simpler maybe than it is. I think humans have an, a very deep-seated need for simplicity. 
um, which is good. You know, we, we simplify things. It makes them it makes it possible for us to understand. I mean, the truth is, is that most of the world is so complicated. It, it requires a lot of work to understand even an area of it. Right. Uh, you know, and this is this is across science, across everything. You know, like it, it's not it's not just science that's complicated. Any human endeavors and for nature, for natural things, I think there's there's a feeling that that's somehow less complicated. So you see that a a non-natural, and I'm putting, I'm using air quotes as I say this. A non-natural thing is uh, has a lot of complicated-looking things in it, and people say, "Oh, it's made of chemicals." Right? Well, everything's chemicals, you know. So, so, and and I think that the the idea is that oh, but an app, just an apple, doesn't have very much in it. It's just an apple. But the apple has, you know, thousands, if not millions, of of different components and and chemicals. And if you if you could list out everything that was in a particular natural thing, you would realize it was just as complicated, if not much more. And in most of the cases, it is much more complicated. So so this idea that something is natural, I think, comes from the idea that we want things to be simple and and easy to understand. So the man that says that uh, natural things shouldn't be uh, number one is also the man that is creating the killer robots. But that's okay. <laughs> we, we, we'll deal with that. Um, when we speak about directing a nanoparticle, or when you when you speak about directing a nanoparticle to provide a certain function, how can you be assured it does what what you want it to do? So that 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 is the question. So it's much more likely, in in my experience, that it does nothing than than it does what you want it to do. Um, I think that the, the the killer robot situation is people are worried about it doing something that you didn't expect it to do. Um, so first off, not only would it have to not do something you expect to do, it'd have to do something much more complicated and much more interesting than you would have ever uh, designed or expected it to do, which is not very, it's not really going to happen, something like that. Something doing, something, something reacting in a way that you didn't expect that is undesirable, that's very common, right? So it, it doesn't do what you want, or maybe it does something else. Maybe, maybe, so very commonly, you know, you, you might design something, hope that it, um, does a specific thing to a cell, and then unfortunately the cell doesn't like the material that you're using, and, and the cell can die. So that's common. And, and knowing whether or not it's going to do the thing that you want it to do is the sort of central question in the science, right? So we, we, we try with, with cell studies, in vitro studies, uh, and then we gradually, um, when we have something that we think is promising, we go to in vivo. So we use uh, rats or mice. Um, some people use things like zebrafish to see um, if if things will happen in in animals, because of course this all of a sudden the system is a lot more complex than than cells on a plate, and then eventually you know just like any other uh, therapeutic, you move into into human trials to to make sure that what you're doing is safe before you before you try and introduce it to to the broader public. And when we speak about nanoparticles being these tiny little um, objects and they're porous, I mean we're using them as oh, sorry you're using them as a delivery device, yes. Uh, yes. Well, so my, my research is more about uh, finding models of how they're interacting with with cells. But, mm-hmm. but yes, we 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 we're essentially we're very so our group is very often interested in using them as a delivery as a delivery system for for uh, for drugs. Now, sometimes we do that by forming the particle out of the drug of interest, right? So you could imagine that you could somehow make uh, sort of a more concentrated form. That's a bunch of the drugs stuck together, and then once the once the cell takes it up, it gets re- it, you know it dissociates, and then it, there's a big amount of drug all at once in that cell. Or you could think of it more as an envelope. So you have the drug, you put it inside, and then once it gets in, it opens up and and releases the drug. Now, of course, the, the central one of the big problems is making sure it opens up and lets go lets lets the drug go that that you're trying to deliver, uh, and making sure it only opens up within the cell. 
uh, and in making sure it gets to the cell, you know, in the case of the envelope, making sure, you know, you have the address and, and, and it's actually getting to the cell and the cell's doing something with it. And that's sort of one of the, the those are the, those are the sort of big problems in, in, in the field of, of nanotherapeutics, some of the big problems. When we talk about your, um, your role in, in nanotherapeutics, I mean, let's say we, we've met at a barbecue and you've, you've met some rube like me who actually says, what is it that you do? You know, what is your role to play? And when you talk about computational modeling, what is, it, what is your role to play in, in delivering nanoparticles to parts of our body? So I think that uh, the field that, that uh, I'm in, one of, the, one of the problems that I'm very passionate about is that we don't do a very good job of comparing new particles to existing particles. So, and part of the reason is that we don't have very good ways to do that. So people make very interesting new things. They show them doing very interesting new things, but it can be quite difficult to know which one's working better or, or how it's working better. And, and one of the reasons for that is that a lot of the methods that we use are a little bit qualitative. So what I mean by that is that it's, it's hard to get a hard number on how well something's doing, how well it's delivering the drug. Part of that is that you know, you kind of need to, you need to carefully think about what it means to be doing something well. You need to define what doing something well or what better means. And a part of the reason is just historically people have, have you know, are used to, to designing new systems and comparing them against the, you know, the sort of a control of their choice. So that's something that I'm very, very passionate about is finding ways to, to compare particles. And part of that is defining what comparing means, um, or, and not just particles, you know, there's different People say particles, capsules. I, I use the term particles to mean sort of any kind of nanotherapeutic. But finding ways to compare them, and and I feel that by finding a way to compare them, that points the way to how to make better ones, right? Because if you know what's working, then you know what you should work on, right? What you can improve. So, so your modeling is modeling of, uh, of big data that's come out of experiments uh, to, as to the success of the, the particle itself? Um, it's not big data. Um, it's more low <laughs> to, to medium data. Um, I would love to work with big data. You know, I'd love to have a ton, a ton of experiments. But, but the truth is, is that we just don't have that, that volume of data uh, coming out. Um, usually to get big data, you need, you need massive investigations that require you know, millions and millions of dollars in automated or, or somehow systematic ways of investigating things. And, and four guys jumping out of a plane yeah. wasn't the same thing? <laughs> not quite. <laughs> we're not, not really getting there. It's more taking, you know, the, the, the scale of data that we're getting on is uh, individual experiments, you know. So it's not, it's not, you know, millions and millions and millions of experiments, which is what people would conventionally mean when they say big data. Um, but there's still plenty of very interesting challenges in, in figuring out how to use the data that, that we do have and uh, maximizing its, its value. What's the, the greatest personal challenge or scientific challenge for you right now? So I'm from a very computational background, and, I, and, I, and I, as I've been here, I've been trying to learn more about the experimental sides and, and doing more experimental things, clearly, as the, as the skydiving experiment shows. So for me, uh, learning how to do a lot of these uh, in-the-lab type experiments has been, has been a big challenge. Um, of course, I'm also learning stuff, you know, totally like new areas of mathematics to myself, um, which is which is always far hard and always fun. But yeah, I think I think the learning the the experimental side and and just really coming to terms with a lot of the techniques that we use and and figuring out the assumptions behind them because almost everything that we measure, almost everything that we do in science or, or really anything that people do, there's a lot of assumptions underlying any particular piece of data or, or information that we come out with. And, and understanding those makes you able to um, react and, and plan appropriately. 
I mean, sometimes I think of, uh, uh, of lab scientists as being people who have got to be incredibly calm and resolved to sit there and conduct an experiment over time and over time and over time and doing it again and again and again. Is there something of a personal challenge and to you in the way you work? Yeah, I think there's definitely a, a discipline aspect of it where you have to you have to separate your own personal feelings from whether what you want and how you want an experiment to go from what you're actually doing, right? So you need to you need to remove as much as possible any kind of bias that you have. So you want to you don't want to be doing something different because you want a particular outcome, right? So so there is that that's there's a sort of a discipline, a separation of stepping back and 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 analyzing things um, clearly without without involving your own personal bias. And I think that, you know, I think that's a very, a very, very important skill for, for all sciences to have. And really, I mean, I guess everyone to have, right? <laughs> you should be trying to think rationally about things, even if they're not science things, right? You know, you, 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 know, you come home and you, you know, your house is robbed. You, you, should, you, should, you don't want your house to be robbed, but you should kind of analyze the situation and realize what's going on, right? Maybe I should change my locks, you know? Like, <laughs> um, that's not a very good example <laughs> at I think, should, I think we should give you a PhD right now just on that. Um, <laughs> Is there something about convergence science that is now? Um, is this is this a new field, or is this have we just changed our perspective on science? There's a lot of interest in in doing interdisciplinary or convergent things. I think part of the reason for that is that people see that there's a lot of opportunity to take skills or interest in one area and go to a new area and then do do new and exciting things in that new area because you have a very different perspective. That's the that's the the dream of it. Right, and and I and I certainly believe that as well. Like that, that's kind of what I've been playing at. Really, is is you know I think that because I have this this computational background, that going into this the, the nano side of things, I, I can offer a perspective that's a little bit different. That's that's just that's you know I'm not not better anyway, but just different from what what other people have done. And then by working with other people that have different perspectives, we can do better work than we would have alone. Um, the problem with that is that moving into a totally new area that you don't know anything, like has the result of, you know, it, there's a lot of work to learn a new area. And there's also the possibility that you'll misunderstand something, which is why it's very important to, to work with good people, I think. Work with, work with people who are experts and, and make sure that you're talking and communicating and having, having a team. And that's, that's why interdisciplinary research, I think, has become a, a big thing. Is people see these, these opportunities and they want to they wanna do something about them. Finally, uh, what would you like to think about when we think about very small things? <laughs> about nanomaterials? Everything is nanomaterials, I think. I, I think I have an uncle who was very worried about the, the gray goose situation of something getting in and, and causing problems. That's not going to happen. That's, there's, there's, there's not a reason to be worried. There's, there's obviously, we should always be worried about problems that, that could arise in any, any discipline, any field, any science. But that concern is coming from science fiction, right? We're, we're worried about a situation where, you know, tiny robots. We're not making tiny robots. We're making materials, you know, things that are much more passive. There are, very, there are few very small groups that are making something that can move just a little bit, you know, maybe it can open and close an arm, but it's not like a... Like a tiny killer robot. <laughs> you, you had to see Matt's hands there, clipping I mean, the other like a crab, a very dangerous <laughs> crab. It's not killer, and, and it's, it, it's, it's stretching it to call a robot. I, I think a lot of people would like it to be a robot, right? We would like to... I would love to have a tiny robot that could do amazing things, right? But we, we, we can't even make a thing that, that, that passively opens and closes something, right? It's, that's, that's very challenging. Um, so I think the, the, the take-home message is that this is an area that has tremendous promise and, and to be honest, not a lot of downside, it seems. You know, we're, we're really engineering things and controlling 
the creation of new materials in a way that hasn't ever really been done in, in human history. And I think that that's incredibly exciting. And I think that there's so much potential and so much promise that, that uh, nanomaterials have for, for the world. A perfect end. Matt, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks to Matt Faria from the Melbourne School of Engineering, University of Melbourne, for his insights into very little things. And thanks to our reporter, Steve Grimwade. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on August 12, 2016. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by Arch Cuthbertson. Co-production by Claudia Hooper. Still curious about the world? Visit our sister podcast, Up Close, which features in-depth and long-form conversations with seasoned researchers across many fields. Don't forget to check out the rest of the amazing content on the Pursuit website. And if you're listening to this on iTunes, why not drop us a little review? I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.